From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. Privilege is what we are going to discuss today, particularly white privilege. White privilege is not something white people are particularly adept of admitting or identifying, let alone doing something about Fox News commentator Bill O'Reilly in his August 2014 program about white privilege said that he doesn't believe in white privilege. Here's what he says. The race hustlers blame white privilege, an unfair society, a terrible country. So the message is, it's not your fault if you abandon your children, if you become a substance abuser. If you are a criminal, no, it's not your fault, it's society's fault. That is the big lie that is keeping some African Americans from reaching their full potential. Bill O'Reilly from his program, The Factor, from August 2014. Is he right? Is there no such thing as white privilege? Do African Americans have no one but themselves to blame? Well, if you're white, that has to make you feel good. Hey, it's not my problem. My guest today on Progressive Spirit has a different point of view. This is Jim Wallace. Well, the privilege, of course, the white privilege has been a real discussion. Yeah. At all these places, and and rightly so. And one young uh, African-American man said, if you can't see white privilege, you got it. I made points, I like, here I am, I raised my hand, I'm a white baby boomer. And I'm the beneficiary of the greatest affirmative action program in my nation's history. When my my dad, a naval veteran in World War II, came back from the war, our family got the GI Bill, free education, and FHA had loaned for our first house, which means you get an education and a house and you're middle class. The government made my white family middle class. Black GIs didn't get those benefits, GI Bill and FHA loans. Now, that's pretty clear about a structural advantage. And the, the more we are honest about it, we'll see that all over the place in the churches and in education. So we have to take that very seriously. And then we, we, we have to uh, create spaces, change, change the place where we have influence. Jim Wallace is the president and founder of Sojourners, which has a combined print and media audience of a quarter million people. He's an evangelical Christian with a social conscience. He's the author of 12 books, including... On God's Side, What Religion Forgets and Politics Hasn't Learned About Serving the Common Good, Rediscovering Values, A Guide for Economic and Moral Recovery, The Great Awakening, Reviving Faith and Politics in a Post-Religious Right America, and God's Politics, Why the Right Gets It Wrong and the Left Doesn't Get It. His latest book is called America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America. He's been on tour talking about his book and the issues it raises, and he's with me on the phone. Jim Wallace, welcome to Progressive Spirit. Glad to be with you. Let's talk about uh, the title of your book. It refers to the statement that uh, racism is America's original sin. Did that metaphor uh, originate with you and Sojourners? Well, we began talking that way a couple decades ago, and I, I see others doing that too. And to me, it's crucial to go back to the beginning and to go deeper and talk about language of sin and repentance. And so the sin isn't just racism per se, because there were other slaveries, and the Greeks were slaves to the Romans, and they tutored their elite kids. (laughs) 
But the particularly uh-huh. venal sin of our slavery was saying, well, we can't treat people uh, like chattel, like property, and create the biggest economic resource for the building of this nation. So we have to say they're less than human. We said from the start, black lives matter less than white lives. It was in the Constitution. I met a young kid in Ferguson who, just this past year, who said, I still feel like I'm treated like three-fifths of a person. It's a black teenage kid feeling the existentially the shamefulness of that of that decision. So, it, and the sad thing for Christians, this, it was our faith. We could see our faith was incompatible with doing this. So instead of saying we won't do it then, we said, no, we'll just say, we'll throw away Imago Deo, the image of God. We'll throw it away and say it doesn't apply here. And that was a sin that still lingers, a legacy of that still lingers, and our policing systems, our criminal justice systems, our economic and educational systems. So we have to deal with it as a sin and repent of that, which means not just feeling sorry, but turning around and going in a whole new direction. When you talk about sin, it's more than just personal sins, isn't it? Uh, The sin of racism is an ideology written into the identity of early America and the Christianity that supported it. Slave owners did not want enslaved people to be baptized, as that might reveal that the enslaved persons were truly human beings and and thus lead to their liberation. Uh, This ideology was just embedded, wasn't it? Well, white supremacy, as you rightly say, um, is an ideology. And and race race was a created construct. Americans came and they were Italians and Swedes and Germans and Irish and very different from each other, but they all became white people when they became here, created as a construct, racial difference and racial betterness. That was the promise. You'll have better treatment here as, as white people. And, and so I think uh, from a theological point of view, it's not just an ideology, it's also an idol. The rightness of whiteness, the normality of whiteness, the assumption of whiteness, and James Cone, a theologian at Union Seminary, said repentance for white people means dying to whiteness. So I have a whole chapter on that in the book. It means getting our souls back from this idolatry, because idols separate us from God. And that's what's happened. The idea of white Christianity itself is a problem. So I always said there's always somebody in the audience, usually a black Christian, who stands up and says, could you unpack this sentence from the book? You say, if white Christians acted more Christian than white, we black parents would have less to fear for our children. And I say, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. That phrase, dying to whiteness, uh, based on a phrase in the Bible, in Paul, where he talks about dying to sin and being raised to new life in Christ. If whiteness is a sin, do you call yourself white? And what does that mean for white people? Well, that's an interesting question. As I go along this... uh, this, the book tours become kind of a town meeting tour, so uh-huh. we're having these great conversations all over the country, and I'm asking diverse uh, faith leaders in every city to respond and, and talk about what this means here. So language is becoming talked about quite a bit, and so I know a, a lot of younger, um, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates, the wonderful author, has talked about the Americans who the Americans who think they are white. It's a good phrase mm-hmm. to give, give some thought to. So a lot of younger uh, white, if you will, Christians I talk to want to talk about their European ethnicities. I'm, I'm a European Christian, or I'm Irish, German, instead of white. So this whole idea of uh, what I'm calling the idolatry of white Christianity, I think really has to be addressed. 
And yet, as people define themselves as Irish-American or European-American instead of white, I wonder if that might still be somewhat less than completely forthcoming. It's whiteness that gives certain people privilege, and if white people define themselves as something other than white, it doesn't seem to be enough, I wonder. Is there a need to acknowledge and own the white privilege, too? Well, the privilege, of course, the white privilege has been a real discussion yeah. at all these places, and, uh, and, and rightly so. And one young uh, African-American uh, man said, if you can't see white privilege, you got it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Good, yeah. Good point. I make points like, here, here I am, I raised my hand, I'm a white baby boomer, and I'm the beneficiary of the greatest affirmative action program in my nation's history when my, my dad, a naval veteran in World War II, came back from the war. Our family got the GI Bill, free education, and FHA had loaned for our first house, which means you get an education in a house and you're middle class. The government made my white family middle class. Black GIs didn't get those benefits, GI Bill and FHA loans. Now, that's pretty clear about a structural advantage. And the, the more we are honest about it, we'll see that all over the place in the churches and in education. So we have to take that very seriously. And then we, we, we have to uh, create spaces, change change the places where we have influence. I talk about racial geography and how 75% of white Americans um, have no significant black relationships in their social systems. That's significant. And so how do we change our racial geography in our schools and in our uh, – uh, I say in sports because I'm a big little league coach, and that's been a real place of change for – for a lot of people. You know, you begin uh, talking about your little league coach in, in the chapter on that. You talk about uh, the talk, uh, in quotes, the talk that black parents have with their children yeah. about uh, the police, uh, what to do and what to say when confronted with a police officer with a gun. White parents don't even have to have this conversation or even know that it exists. Uh, talk more about this, the talk and what that means. Well, you, you put it very well. All my black players, every black player has had that talk. Now, not just low-income black kids, but, you know, the, the sons of top lawyers in Washington, D.C., top black lawyers. And, and they've all had the hug. And, and, and the white parents don't even know it's going on. And, and I think that's what white parents have to finally decide if they care about that or not, if that's acceptable to us or not, that their, their son's teammates are having that talk from their parents and, and they don't have to give that to their kids. I wrote this book, this all white privilege has to become personal. I wrote this book when Trayvon Martin was shot and killed in Florida. I looked at my son, Luke, and I saw he's about the same age as Trayvon. And the whole country knows, if we're honest with each other, that if Luke Wallace, six-foot-tall varsity athlete playing college baseball next year, if he were in Sanford, Florida, the same night, same time as Trayvon Martin, doing the same things, we all know he'd come back to me and joy. But Trayvon didn't come back to his parents and isn't going to college in the fall. And so we have to decide whether we care about that as white parents and as Christians, whether we can accept that. And the longer we accept that, this is no change. Progressive Spirit. Spirituality. Social justice. ProgressiveSpirit.net. 
Jim Wallace is my guest. He's the author of America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America. He's going around to, to town meetings to talk about this book and to talk, uh, introduce, and uh, not introduce, well, perhaps it is introduce, the conversation of racism in America. And I want to talk a bit more about you with that. What was it that made you be conscious of white privilege and, and why it's important for you personally uh, to write about race in America? Well, I, w- I want to say the conversation has been going on in black churches, uh, Hispanic churches, uh, for a long time. Ferguson was mm. the first time we saw that or it ever happened, and, and we see it all the time. But now the conversation is finally getting beyond that, beyond black families and black churches, which is critical. And for me, I was in Detroit. I grew up in Detroit. And as a white teenager, I began to listen to my city, just read the papers and hear the news and ask questions. And um, how come life seems so different in black Detroit, just a few miles or blocks away from us in white Detroit? And I wasn't getting answers in my white world or church. Nobody would want to talk about it. Something big seemed very wrong, and nobody would speak about it. So I went in the city, and I I took jobs alongside young guys who were my age, but they were black and I was white, and we were born in the same city, but I began to learn that we'd been raised in different countries. And one night, I was invited home to dinner with one of my new friends. who We were janitors at Detroit Edison Company, and Butch was his name, and we talk and talk all the time. And he brought me home to dinner, and his mother was like my mother. She wasn't political or militant. She was worried about her son's ideas getting him in trouble like my mother was getting to be. And and she said this. She said so. She told me about the relationship of her of her the men in her family, her grandfather, father, husband who passed now, and Butch, with police. And she said so. I tell my kids if you're if you're lost, ever lost, and can't find your way home, if you see a policeman, duck under a stairwell, hide behind a building, wait till he passes, and then find your way home on your own. And when when she said that, my mother's words echoed in my head to us five kids you ever lost and can't find your way, your way home, look for a policeman. The policeman is your friend. He'll take you by the hand and bring you home. So it's this issue of proximity. And I've learned most about the world from being places I wasn't supposed to be and being with people I was never supposed to meet or know. And that's what changes us. And so for me, that those moments and that teenage, those, period, those experiences turned turn my life in a different direction. And uh, as you took that experience and story back to church it wasn't particularly well received at your white church no. it was your your no. your meddling right your meddling in politics which was as part of the uh the whole system of of uh, whiteness as ideology and sin well, well you 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 picked that up in the book that that moment where that white elder in my church i'm trying to you know i'm bringing home new answers new questions new friends to my church and they weren't welcome and he said, Jim, you got to understand Christianity has nothing to do with racism. That's political, and our faith is personal. And that's the night that I left in my mm-hmm. teenage head and heart, because and, this is what was just turning my life upside down. And he said, it had no, nothing to do with my faith. So then I said, well, I don't want anything to do with that faith either. And I didn't have words to go around that back then, but I do now, which is God personal, but never private. And so this is just how we take our our faith public, you know, and, and, uh, and I was just in Los Angeles where the new America, where we're going to no longer be a white majority nation is already happening. You know, we're a majority of majorities in, in about two decades and LA, it's already true. Wonderful church 
average age 28, uh, deliberately trying to be a multicultural church. And we did Galatians 3.28, famous text, uh, there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, in, in, we're all one in Christ Jesus. Well, that text I learned in the research for this book was a baptismal text in the early church. It was a baptismal formula, which they used, and baptism is where we make our faith public. And so here's all these new converts coming to be baptized, and here's what the church is saying. These divisions, these divisive, these things divide humankind, race, class, and gender. We are overcoming those. We are undermining those. We are deliberately taking those down, breaking down those walls in this community, this new, this body of Christ. If you don't want to do that, you, you better go somewhere else. They're making themselves very clear. And, and so what if we were that clear in our changing demographic society? This is where we break down those barriers. If you don't want that, you better go somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, Martin Luther King, you quoted uh, in your book, his famous quote, uh, I'm ashamed and appalled that the 11 o'clock on Sunday morning hour is the most segregated hour in Christian America. H- has that changed at all or, uh, since his time? Well, I have a whole chapter on that called the segregated church or the beloved community, which was his wonderful phrase. And and Michael Emerson has done a lot of good research on this. And now it's about 13% now, multicultural, multiracial. It, by his, his metric, 20% of the congregation has to be uh, of a different race than, than the majority. So it's changing. It's doubled in the last three decades. And there are principles you can apply, mostly intentionality. It doesn't happen by accident. You got to be very intentional to overcome that racial geography. So I think it's possible, and I see a new generation wanting to do that uh, very deeply. Well, I want to talk about that too. Some of this is generational. Younger generations don't seem quite as divided regarding race. Would you say? You know, uh, immigration is a big issue, of course, mm-hmm. around all of this, and I have a chapter on that in the book. And I tell the story how uh, the most important talk I ended up giving on immigration was my son's fifth grade public school class. They were studying the issue. They brought some dads in who were involved. And and I told them about 11 million undocumented people who weren't getting the medical care they needed or police protection. uh, And their families were being broken up because of a thousand deportations every day. And the kids were really astonished and they were just really uh, upset. And they said, why don't they fix that? Why doesn't the Congress fix that? Have you talked to them? And so I said, yeah, I've talked to them. (laughs) What do they say? And I said, well, they say their constituencies are afraid. And the kids just looked so puzzled. They said, what are they afraid of? And then it hit me. I looked at my son's fifth grade public school class. They're African-American, Latino, Asian-American, Native American, white, Somali, Maltese. They're everything. I said, they're afraid of you. Yeah, They're afraid of you. Kids said, why are they afraid of us? Well, they're afraid that you look like the new America, what we're becoming. And why are they afraid of that? Because they don't think it's going to work. And I said, so is it working? And the kids said, yeah, that's really cool. (laughs) I said, we have to convince the country it's really cool. But that's what the the churches have to do. We have to help model this new demographic. We have to help navigate these waters toward a whole new America. And I think that, that that's a role we can take and should take. It's essential that we play that role, and I, I think we can do that. Progressive spirit, spirituality, social justice. 
Jim Wallace is my guest. His book is America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America. And that was the question I was going to talk about, the bridge, the Edmund, Edmund Pettus Bridge that you talk about yeah. uh, in Selma, Alabama. Also, you had a kind of a revelation that it's, it's the metaphor for this new multicultural America and making diversity not something to fear but to embrace is our task. Right. Well, the picture of the bridge is on the cover of the book is Edmund Pettus Bridge, who was a Ku Klux Klan leader, and he's, the bridge is still named after him. And I was there for the 50th anniversary of the famous Bloody Sunday when now Congressman John Lewis and other activists marched across that bridge for voting rights and were, were beaten almost to, to death. And, and so President Obama was there and the First Lady and his family and, and the foot soldiers who walked across that bridge. Now they're in wheelchairs and walkers. There they were walking up the bridge, and they asked me to join them, and I was just really blessed to walk up the bridge with them. And I got to the top of the bridge, and we're all in tears and holding each other. I said to myself, what's the bridge we have to cross? My kids, what's going to be their bridge? And I think it is this bridge to a new demographic America where most Americans are going to come from Africa, Asia, and Latin America uh, by the middle of the century. And I think that's, uh, that's the bridge the churches have to help the nation cross. And I see it happening. And, you know, it's a clear issue about bridges or walls. And we saw it just with uh, Donald Trump mm. and Pope Francis. Pope Francis said, he said clearly, uh, to say to those who want to build walls and not bridges, that's not a Christian message. Now, he's, you know, Donald Trump's faith is between his soul and God. But his message of building walls is not Christian, and the Pope said that very clearly. And so it's time for Christians to stand up uh, across our, and people who aren't people of faith to say, no, bridges. We're choosing bridges over walls. And that was a very clear moment uh, this week. And I think that could maybe spark a conversation about what we should be caring about in this election campaign even. Right. Bridges over walls. That's good. You know, this interview is being recorded uh, near the 51st anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X, February 21st, 1965. Now, Malcolm was critical of Christianity as a white man's religion, and he he went through his own transition, uh, making the pilgrimage to Mecca, and which he said Islam is the one religion that uh, erases from its society the race problem. Um, What can we, is there another bridge that we need to make with African-American Muslims? Um, and, uh, and, and, and what can we learn from Islam within Christianity? Well, it's really interesting how um, uh, uh, the attack uh, on immigrants, on a black president, on inner-city black people that's being made by some candidates uh, is also now being extended to Muslims, which is racial as, as well in their minds. And I think when Christians reach out uh, in solidarity with Muslims who want to protect and defend their religious liberty in this country and move into relationship with them. That's, that's a very powerful thing. And, uh, and I, you get thousands of emails from Muslims when you stand up for their, uh, their dignity and their religious freedom, and they don't expect that from, from, from us. And so I think that's a critical place of interaction. So I think um, we have to stand against the idea that Muslims aren't Americans and can't become Americans and don't belong here. And certainly we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and then we move out to talk to those who aren't uh, 
don't share our faith, and they're Muslims and they're Jews, and they're and they're people who are not any religion. They say they're none of the above, and and I think when we show we are living by our faith with courage, it really helps people to see that there's integrity in our faith, and then we can re- reach out to people who have a different faith and not be afraid of that. No reason to be afraid. Yeah, one of the key points of your book is uh, understanding the relationship between the, the personal and the and the systemic. Uh, white people right. might say, I- "I'm not a racist," or, or regard a police shooting as an isolated incident and not see the the entire racist system that is behind it, in front of it. So, how do we get to that understanding? How how does white America repent of its whiteness and change direction? You know, I had a phone call the other day from a uh, uh, a program director of a radio station uh, in Detroit. It was a black radio station. And she was she was just asking me to be on the show, but then she was saying, I'm so frustrated by my white colleagues in regard to Flint and what's going on there. And they keep saying, I'm not a racist. And and they miss the whole point of Flint, that, that Flint mm-hmm. is showing us that racism is in the air we breathe and the water that we drink. It's It's the toxicity of the air and the water. And changing that air and water is what we have to do. And so it is systemic in policing and criminal justice and the economy and education. So how do we deal with that systemically and uh, make it personal at the, the same time? So it's not a matter of, um, of uh, individual uh, behavior. It's the difference in guilt and responsibility. Yeah. No, we're not guilty for everything that's been done. But if you benefit from oppression, you are responsible for changing it, and that's what we can do. Absolutely. Uh, thank you, uh, Jim Wallace, uh, for this book and for this conversation today. His latest book, very important, America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America. Thanks for being with me today. Blessing to be with you. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. For more about the show and links to podcasts, go to progressivespirit.net. You can have Progressive Spirit delivered to your device through iTunes, Stitcher, Podomatic, TuneIn, Pod Directory, or any podcast app. Progressive Spirit is free to radio stations. Stations can download weekly programs ready for broadcast from Pacifica Audio Port. Progressive Spirit is heard each week on WEHC Emory, Virginia, WETS, Johnson City, Tennessee, WPVM, Asheville, North Carolina. Progressive Spirit is produced at KBOO Portland. That website is progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. Be well. Mm-hmm.